Welcome back. It looks like it's that time of year. The wonderful time of the year for for me anyways. Halloween, not Christmas. All you dirty Christmas celebrators. (laughs) So today we have a special guest who will be joining us to tell some tales from France. My wonderful fiance, David. Hello, David. Hello. Bonjour, bonjour, everyone. Wow. <laughs> Calm down. Now, uh... I'll just say hello. <laughs> now, David, I think you might have some tales to share with us tonight, right? Yeah, so for those who don't know me, which is most of you... Wait, um, sir. I'm actually... Calm down. Mm-hmm. Calm down. We're getting there. <laughs> we uh, are getting there. <laughs> You do, <laughs> you do, do you? Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm come from um, a region in Brittany. This region is called Brittany, which is a Celtic place, and the Celtic, as you know, is uh, the place where Halloween was uh, created. So um, I do have some stories about uh, some uh, custom that uh, I was told by my grandparents. So it's a bit of a journey down memory lane and a, a look at a mythology of a ghost and a fairies and a other weird things and death and souls. Yes, uh, for Halloween or as some call it, Samhain, which is, you know, <laughs> what I'm sure you might have heard it called, well, a few times over in France, David? Uh, actually, in Brittany, we call it Calan Guanf. Okay, well, that sounds even better, but... <laughs> uh, which actually means first day of winter. Yeah, so Samhain actually uh, actually was marking the Celtic time uh, between the changing of the two seasons. So, for... You can correct me if I'm wrong, David, here anytime. <laughs> I don't want to speak for your culture, but uh, there were three days where it's just basically no time was accounted for. It just didn't seem to exist. Mm-hmm, <laughs> just... Indeed. <laughs> okay. So tonight, I guess we're going to be sharing some stories from France. I mean, are you only doing stories from France, David? I am doing Celtic stories, so it's mostly a story from my region. Just um, um, it's based on the book, uh, which is a Celtic book of the dead, was uh, was written, which sorry, which was written uh, by this uh, folklorist called um, Anatole Le Bras, who went all around Brittany to uh, collect the stories of uh, death and uh, the custom of death in Brittany. It's pretty weird, but yes, it's mostly uh, Celtic because uh, for those who maybe don't know, Halloween is not something that is big in France whatsoever. So no, we don't have this big celebration that uh, you have in the U.S. Apparently, it's celebrated the biggest in America and, well, I guess the United States and Canada, so basically North America, uh, with some Australians joining in on the festivities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In France, it's mostly bars is doing it. It's just a way to attract people, really. So, 
why don't you explain this what some of your Halloweens were like as a kid to just see how different it might be as someone from America? Yeah, of course, I can be very, very simple. There was nothing. <laughs> simple as that, there was nothing. Like, um, as I was telling you before, before um, Halloween for me was in American movies. And I always were fascinated by that celebration because being Celtic uh, and it's being based on Celtic traditions, uh, it was weird for me that this thing was not really existing in France or in Brittany. So we didn't have any of these. And uh, the only time actually I was seeing Halloween was in movies. And that's it, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean... I think we can all blame Pope Gregory the Third, you know, who designated November the first as a time to honor the saints, and because he wanted to convert some Celtics over to Christianity. <laughs> mm, indeed, <laughs> and you can see that a lot in a in a Brittany when you look at churches and everything else, because you've got a mix up between a Celtic uh, mythology in sculptures and actually Christian mythology. So you can have a saint. And next, next to the kind of one of the monsters showing his ass. It's pretty weird, but uh, it's true. <laughs> but it's not really something that's been celebrated in here. Um, unfortunately, the French government for a very long time tried to oppress um, the Breton uh, people uh, for the culture. They wanted one culture was a French culture. So... Um, my grandparents, for example, were beaten up if they were speaking Breton because we do have a, a language called Breton in here. So they were beaten up by, uh, at school if they were speaking Breton. So the culture was slowly, uh, erased, uh, in here. And it only came back in the seventies, uh, when, uh, we had some terrorists to try to actually, uh, get a Brittany independence by destroying, uh, the only thing that was bringing television to, to Brittany. So funny story for like uh, maybe six months, we actually had no television uh, in Brittany. So people started to go back into the old days of uh, talking to each other, telling each other stories. And that's uh, where Breton culture came back to life. We love to see that. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I guess before we cut to the intro, uh, it is Halloween. So, well, Technically, when you hear this, it will be Halloween. <laughs> but mm-hmm. are there any ghost stories you might want to share briefly with us, David? Ghost stories? Uh, well, I can maybe tell about uh, that time when I was uh, in my bed, when I was a kid, and I woke up and I saw this uh, old lady staring at me on the other side of the room. Oh. And this portal, dark portal next to her, that was terrifying. Did you go into the Was it a ghost? I don't know, but she was certainly scary. It ghost. stopped me sleeping for a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, and around how old were uh, you uh, when that happened? Uh, maybe seven or eight. Oh, yeah. Children are way more sensitive to these types of things. People need to understand. Uh, people need to understand. Well, to explain a bit of the context, uh, my grandparents were farmers, uh, and they lived in an old house. So there was this, and my uh, parents uh, lived in a new build, but the new build was made in a forest. So actually, it used to be a forest, and actually, uh, they just uh, removed the trees and creating like a place to actually put houses in there. 
but it was pretty uh it was a very weird place uh, so yeah it was there was a lot of weird things going on and uh it didn't help my my, uh, <laughs> my grandparents were a bit uh on the superstitious side so um i had a lot of story being told when i was a kid story that maybe you should be telling your kids this <laughs> <laughs> can be very scary <laughs> or maybe you should it might keep them uh, from running into the woods like I did as a kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, like I told you about uh, when I was going to my grandparents, and there was that uh, that lady was supposed to be a witch who was hiding in a uh, hiding in the bushes and just jumping at people who was passing the street dressed up in green paper, green uh, plastic bags. That was oh. a weird one too. <laughs> well, I seeing we both grew up on uh, on farms. It's kind of interesting to hear some of the paranormal things that come out of them because as for example i grew up in a place where a bunch of uh native americans had been slaughtered and then next to a tree where they did public hanging so a lot of bad <laughs> juju, juju as we would say <laughs> <laughs> and the things that i would see definitely i've yet to uh explain them away like from hearing your name called at random times from some woman out in the middle of the woods to uh large creatures standing against the door looking like at first we thought there it was a bear but there's no way a bear was that big and this was north mississippi so <laughs> seeing a bear itself was super rare and of course um ghosts so whether it was uh uh a girl in basically 17th century clothing that wanted to play footsies <laughs> and they um and basically holes in the ground that, that went to nowhere. And yeah, it's just a lot of bad things that happened. So tonight we're going to just share some stories from our places of origin, I guess you would say. <laughs> well, I mean, just re- uh, go ahead, David. Mm, it just reminded me of the fact that uh, my grandparents were always bringing me to the woods. And that woods actually was the place when uh, the resistance during the war were, were shot by the, the German army. So, um, <laughs> you got 40 people being shot there. There must be ghosts in there. And it was a pretty scary forest, I must say. Yeah. Oh, death. <laughs> I'll bring you there someday. <laughs> well, I mean, since I'm the one here always doing the intro, since <laughs> this is a solo podcast most of the time, do you want to do the intro, David? Okay. Uh, I don't even know how you do this. Okay. <laughs> If this is your first time here, we're your host, Anthony and David, and you are listening to Not Another Aura Podcast. I was born in Brittany. For those who might not know, it's the most western region of France. Forcibly annexed to France in 1532, 
We are a region unlike any others. We have our own language, our own culture, uh, even our own mythology. And despite repeated attempts by France to get us to abandon our heritage, we have remained a proud Celtic nation. My grandparents were farmers. They worked the fields, they sold their milk to the local cooperatives, and lived a simple life in nature. I spent a lot of time at the farm, every Wednesday and part of the summer holidays. I lived around animals, nature, and often my grandparents would give me lessons on the myth and legend in the area and what to do and not to do if I wanted to stay safe from the forces living amongst us. Breton mythology is full of gods and fairy folks. This name might have described fairies as gentle folks, but it is far from being the case in my culture. They can be violent, vicious, and sometimes bloodthirsty. For example, we can look at the Corrigans. They are spirits taking on the appearance of dwarves in the Breton tradition. Their appearance is varied. They can be endowed with magnificent hair and luminous red eyes, with the help of which they are supposed to bewitch mortals. Or they are described as being small, black and hairy, wearing flat hats and with ribbon velvet, the girls wearing purple caps. They are also described as horned dwarves, one or two cubit tolls, with goat's feet, iron hooves, and cat's clothes. The tales place them most often in caves, tumuli, or even in dolmens, but they also haunt the sources, the fountains, or the moors of the Breton countryside. They are credited with the witchy circles that are sometimes found on the meadows or in undergrowth. It is said that they form a circle there to dance at nightfall. To the mortals who disturb them, they sometimes offer challenges which, if successful, give the right to a wish, but which can, in case of failure, turn into deadly traps, leading straight to hell or an underground prison with no hope of deliverance. On the night of October 31st, it is claimed that they rage near dormants, ready to drag the victim into the underworld to avenge the dead for the misdeed of the living. This tradition linked them to the no less Celtic Halloween, which has become of the centuries and religion, the feast we know today. I remember the old folks in my family telling me that if I were to find breads on the horse's hair, I should never remove them, as they were made by Corrigans to use the horses to ride during the nights. Removing the breads could cause the death of the horse. The fairy folk are such an interesting subject in Celtic and Breton culture, but on this Halloween night, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the Anon, the spirit folks. Because if the day is for the living, the world at night belongs to the dead, and for the two to live in peace, rule needs to be followed. And Breton culture is closely linked to death and the Anku. What? You never heard about the Anku? Uh, the Anku is a major figure in Breton mythology, often appearing in the oral tradition and in tales of Lower Brittany where I come from. It does not represent death itself, but the Anku is 
his servant. His role is to collect the soul of the deceased. Basically, the last deaths of the year in each parish become the uncle of that parish for the following year. It grows around with a little cart and two sick horses. And when the living person hears the noise of the cart, it means that he or someone around him will soon pass from life to death. The characters of the Anku is omnipresent here, in literature, sculptures, on churches, on crosses, painting, and for a very long time, special rituals were made to avoid being taken by him. For example, in Lower Brittany, you never enter a newly built house without having an animal enter before you. Because when a house is being built, as soon as you put in place the entrance, it is said that the uncle will come and sit there looking for the first person of the family who will enter. Crossing the uncle will mean certain death, so the only way to avoid that fate was to give an offering, the life of an animal as a tribute. Usually, a fecunded egg will suffice, but in the county of Campale, people were burning a cockerel alive and sprinkled its blood on the foundation of the house. So, here's a Breton guy to live in peace with the unknown and how to notice the presence. First of all, as long as there is light outside, the world belongs to the living. But when evening comes, the departed soul take control of the world and you must never be outside during that time without a good reason, especially between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. If you walk on the road on a rainy day and you see part of the road dry, you can be sure that some soul are making penance at the dry patches. In Brittany, it is bad to mourn the death for too long. This tale, as told by Marie Ostiu in Quimper in 1889, will explain you why. There was, at Carré, a young girl whose mother had just died and who could not console herself for this loss. She just cried day and night. Everything the pitiful neighbors said to her in an attempt to soothe her pain only made it worse. Often she thrashed about like a mad woman crying, I would like to see my mother again. Oh, I would like to see my mother again. In desperation, the neighbors had recourse to the rector, who was a holy man. The latter went to the young and, instead of reproaching her for a lamentation, began to pity her gently. Then, after having come her a little in this way, he said, You would be glad to see your mother again, wouldn't you, my child? Oh, Mr. Rector, there is not a moment in the day where I do not beg God grant me this favor. Well, my child, it will be done according to your desire. Come find me tonight in the confessional. She was right on schedule. The rector confessed her and gave her absolution. Now, he added, stay kneeling here. You will have to stay in prayer until you hear the church clock strikes midnight. You will only have to pull the curtains of the confessional slightly aside 
and you will see your mother pass. That said, the rector left. The young girl remained in prayer for the prescribed time. Midnight struck. She parted the curtains and this is what she saw. A procession of departed souls were advancing through the middle of the nave toward the choir. They all walk with mysterious step and make no more noise than summer clouds make on a calm day crossing the sky. One of them, however, the last one, seemed to be dragging herself along and her body was distraught because she was carrying a bucket full of overflowing black water. Soon the young girl recognized her as a mother and was struck by the look of anger on her face. She went home. She cried even more deeply, convinced that her mother was not happy in the other world. Then, this bucket and this black water intrigued her. At dawn, she ran to tell the old rector, who said, Return to your post again tonight. You may be told what you want to know. At midnight, the deceased souls parted silently as the day before. The girl through the half-opening of the curtain watched. His mother was only the last to come. A hundred times she was bent over because, instead of a bucket, she had to carry two. She was bent under the load and her face was almost black with anger. For once, the young girl could not refrain from calling out to the dead woman. Mom, mom, what's the matter with you that you look so gloomy? She hadn't finished when her mother rushed at her furious and shouted at her, shaking an apron until she ripped it off. That I have? Unhappy. Will you soon stop crying for me? Can't you see that you forced me, at my age, to work as a water carrier? These two buckets are full of your tears, and if you don't console yourself now, I will have to drag them out until Judgment Day. Remember that the anon must not be mourned, because if a souls are happy, one disturbs the beatitude. If they waited to be saved, their salvation is delayed, and if they are damned, the water from the eyes that weep for them fall on them in a rain of fire, which redouble their torture by renewing their regrets. Thus spoke the dead. When the next day the young girl reported this word to the rector, the later asked, Have you cried since, my child? Certainly not, and henceforth will not will. So go back to the church tonight. I think you will have reason to rejoice. The young girl rejoiced indeed, for her mother walked in the head of the procession of the soul that night, her face completely clear, completely radiant with a celestial bliss. Finally, Let's talk a little bit about the fate of the soul. The priest who celebrates the burial is, it is said, informed at the moment when the coffin touches the bottom of the grave whether the soul of the dead is saved or lost. Also, when he immediately closes his book, leaving the tombs and hurries to sing the song, it means that there is nothing more to do. The dead man 
is damned. When the priest throws the first spadeful of earth on the coffin, he can see in his book of hours what must be the fate of the buried person, but is forbidden to divulge the secrets on pain of taking, even in hell, the place of the deceased. But there is a way within everyone reach to find out if a soul is damned or not. It suffice to go, on leaving the cemetery, immediately after the burial, to a place raised and uncovered from which one has view over a certain extent of the country. From up there, the dead man's name is shouted three times, in three different directions. If only once the echo prolonged the sound, it means that the soul of the deceased is not damned. Also, when you lose a tooth, whether you have it pulled out or it falls out on its own, you mustn't commit the imprudence of throwing it away, because if a dog pick it up, you're damned. It must not be made to disappear in a fire either, otherwise it will go straight to hell, and one is obliged to go and fetch it there after its death. One or two things either you keep it on you, in your wallet, for example, or you put it in the church, in the fonts. And there you should be safe. For the women of the Leon, where I come from, to sell one's hair is to sell one's soul, and that they say because the water of baptism has flowed through it. If the flowers that are placed on the bed where the dead lies wither as soon as they are laid there, it is because the soul is damned. If they only fade after a few moments, the soul is in purgatory, and the longer they take to fade, the shorter the penance. They are, it is said, people who knows from the color of the smoke rising from a house where there is a dead person, whether that dead person should go to heaven, to purgatory, or to hell. But if you really want to have sure information about the fate of a loved one, you can only address your question to the Agrippa. The Agrippa is a huge book, placed upright, he at the height of a man. The leaves are red, the characters are black. For it to be effective, it must be signed by the devil. As long as we didn't have to consult it, we must keep it close with the help of a big uh, lock. It is a dangerous book, so you should never leave it unattended. It is suspended by means of a chain from the strongest beam of a reserved room. It is necessary that this beam is not straight, but twisted. The name of this book varies from countries to countries. In Tréguier, it is called Agrippa, but in the region of Châteaulin, Aigremont, of which there is an Aigremus variant, around Quimper, Arvif, in the vicinity of Oléon, a Negromont. In Proescat, the book is Iromancery. Personally, I always heard the name Negromont. And this book, well, it's a special book, because this book is alive and is reluctant to let himself be consulted. You have to be stronger than him to wrest his secret from him. As long as we haven't tamed it, we only see red, 
the black characters only show themselves when forced to, by thrashing the book like a wayward horse. We are forced to fight with him and the struggle sometimes lasts for hours, and we come out bathed in sweat. The man who has an Agrippa can no longer get rid of it without the help of a priest, and only at the point of death. So talk about a curse. Originally, only priests possessed Agrippas. Each of them as is the day after their ordination. They usually found it when they wake up on the bedside table, without knowing where it come from or who brought it to them. But during the revolution, many ecclesiastics emigrated. Some of the Agrippas fell into the hand of simple clerk who, during their time in the schools, had learned the art of using them. But this Agrippa would then transmit it to the ascendant, and this explained the presence of, in certain farms of the strange book. The clergy know how many Agrippas are not in the right hand, and which are the profane or old one. The priest does not pretend anything, as long as the holder is alive. But when, at the approach of death, he is called to his bedside after having heard the confession of the dying man, he speaks to him in these terms. Jean, or Pierre, or Jacques, you will have a very heavy weight to carry beyond the tomb if you have not got rid of it in this world. The dying man asks with astonishment, but what is this weight? It is a weight of the Agrippa, which is in your house, answered the priest. Deliver it to me, otherwise you have such a burden to drag you will never reach paradise. It is rare that the dying man doesn't immediately send to untie the clutch and give the Agrippa's back. The priest exercised the book and keep him quiet. Then he ordered the people who are there to fetch a bundle of gorse. He set it on fire himself. The Agrippa is soon reduced to ashes, and the priest then collect the ashes, and close it in a sachet, and pass the sachet around the neck of the dying man, saying, May this be light for you. It is said that it is difficult for a rector to sleep at ease as long as there remain only one Agrippa in his parish, in an order that is own or those of his vicars. But you don't have to be a priest to know when an unskilled man has an Agrippa. Because the man who has one smells a particular odor. He smells of sulfur and smoke because he deals with the devils. This is why we deviate from him. Then he doesn't walk like everyone else. He hesitates in every step he takes for fear of trampling on a soul. And on that note, I wish you a happy Halloween and I hope this little peek in Britain mythology was interesting to you. So, see you next time. Kenavo.
The story that I'm going to tell you tonight will be about the hide behind. Now, what exactly is the hide behind, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. It's a nocturnal, fearsome creature from American folklore that preys upon humans that wander the woods. And was blamed for the disappearance of early lockers when they failed to return to camp. As his name suggests, the hide behind is said to be able to conceal itself when an observer attempts to look directly at it. The creature quickly hides behind an object or behind the observer and therefore cannot be directly seen. The hide behind supposedly uses this ability to stalk human prey without being observed and to attack them without warning. Said victims, including lumberjacks and others who frequent the forests, are then dragged back to the creature's lair to be devoured. The creature subsists chiefly upon the intestines of its victims and has a severe aversion to alcohol, which is therefore considered a sufficient repellent. Tales of the hide behind may have been used as an explanation of strange noises in the forest at night. Early accounts describe hide behinds as large, powerful animals, despite the fact that no one was able to see them. One listener submitted their story about their encounter with the hide behind. I will read to you what it says. Have you ever heard of the hide behind? I have, and I'm lucky to be able to tell the tale about my crazy encounter I had one day while I was out in the woods. It was a warm summer morning when I decided that I needed a little fresh air and adventure. I had just left my incredibly stressful job of six years as a case manager for the elderly. I packed my bags, broke my lease, broke up with my boyfriend, and moved back home with my parents. It was a huge step for me as I had been out of my parents' house since I was 18. They lived in a really cute part of Maine that was basically in the middle of nowhere. It was perfect, and exactly where I needed to be to figure out my future. I packed my backpack, got in my Jeep, and headed for a local hiking trail. The morning was young and full of potential. I arrived at my destination, grabbed my beer, my map, and headed out. I've never really been a fan of hiking or nature, to be totally honest with you, but I needed a change. The trail was beautiful, and there was so much to see and explore. Due to being so captivated by nature's beauty, the day had gotten away from me, and before I knew it, the time was about four in the afternoon. I put my phone on airplane mode so I wouldn't be bothered while I took photos and wrote in my journal. I was only seeking peace and quiet. I needed to be alone, and nothing was going to prevent that from happening. I had found a waterfall and quiet little spring where I decided to go for a dip in the water. I felt a little uncomfortable, though, because for some reason it felt as if I was being watched. Occasionally, I could hear branches snapping as if someone or something was walking around the perimeter of the spring I had discovered. I was out in nature, though, so it could have been anything. I quickly ate my lunch, and that's when I thought I saw something move behind the trees. I turned to get a better look, but nothing was there. I took my phone off airplane mode, but of course I had no service out there in the middle of nowhere. The weather suddenly changed drastically as if it was going to downpour. There was nobody else around, and I began to get really scared. So I began heading back to my Jeep. At one point, I stopped walking to catch my breath and take a drink of water. 
It was then that I heard the trees and bushes rattling. I call out to see if anybody is around, but nobody answers me. I shout a few more times just to be sure, but no response follows. I have this dreadful feeling as if someone is following me or at least watching from a distance. I quicken my pace because something is clearly going on and although I'm almost sprinting down the trail, the sounds remain close behind me. The faster I run, the faster the sounds appear to follow. Twigs were snapping and the bushes were swaying back and forth violently. The sounds were so thunderous as if a whole army was following me. These sounds were not only frightening, but it seems to be the only thing I was able to hear, and they were getting closer. I felt like I was going to vomit or pass out from the adrenaline and fear mixing it together. If whatever was following me manages to catch me, I don't know what would have happened, and I was about to become a gone-missing poster in the local police department. I quickened my pace to a full sprint until... I reached the end of the trail. I felt like I was flying on cloud nine, but I still wasn't fully safe yet. As I began getting into my jeep, I saw something in the rearview mirror, standing at the entrance to the trail from where I had just emerged. It had to be about seven feet tall, covered from head to toe, and thick, snarled hair. Two large vampire-like teeth stained with blood, and two sinister glowing yellow eyes. I blinked and the thing was suddenly gone, back into the woods, I hoped but I wasn't sticking around to find out. I hauled ass home and told my folks about what had occurred during my outing. I was so shaken and upset, but my parents didn't seem as surprised as I had expected. They not only believed me, but told me a story about these creatures called the hide-behinds. Apparently, they are creatures that hide behind trees, lurking around the woods, hoping to get in reach of unsuspecting prey. The story claimed that if the high behind were to catch you, it then drags you back to its cave where it eats you while you're still alive. Later that week, I got my photos printed out and much to my own horror, in every photo you could see the very same pair of yellow eyes that I had seen at the trail entrance that day from my jeep. It appeared to be hiding behind the trees in every photo. The next day, I got up, packed my bags, and headed back to Boston. This experience assured that I will never hike in the woods again. After my little brush with death, I decided I was going to go back to school for nursing and start a career in the city, far away from the woods and its dark mysteries. If you ever need direction in your life, I suggest talking to a counselor or friends because a hike in the main woods could lead to the end of your future endeavors and a full stomach. Far more frightening than an unknown career path. Now, this led me down a rabbit hole to look for more encounters with the high behind, but I couldn't find many. I was, however, able to find a Reddit post where a person claims to have also encountered the high behind. Let me read the post to you. Whenever my brother and I came home late for dinner, our dad would tell us about the high behinds. These creatures, he would say, would follow hikers as they walked through the woods. At the crack of a branch, you turn around, but there'd be nothing there. Then out of the corner of your eyes, you might see a dark shape sprint behind a tree. Soon your paranoia escalates and you're running through the woods, but there is no escape, he'd say. The high behind would follow you until your heart stopped from the fright. And I believed him. The child that I was for a while, I'd never stay in the woods far too long or too late. 
and I was never late for dinner, but I soon grew out of such fantasies. There were other real dangers of the woods to fear. Getting lost or preyed upon by bears to hide behind seemed so immature compared to that. Yet every now and then, when I linger in the woods after twilight, a dark shape darting behind a tree would catch my eye. For an instant, my heart would skip a beat, but I dismissed them as deer or simply paranoia. I didn't want to believe. I should have listened to my instincts. There's a reason people have an innate fear of the woods. There is a reason we feel like something is following us when we hike home after dark. Like my childhood nightmares come to life, I found myself lost in the woods. One day, as the sun went down, I walked as fast as I could through the thick woods, trying to get my bearings. No, that's the wrong way. I doubled back, just in time to catch a glimpse of something behind a tree. Perhaps that was the right way after all. I turn around and continue. Faster, I look back and there it is, again. But this time, he lingers in the open for a while before disappearing behind the trees. Now I'm running. My heart races. The thorns tear at my legs. I need to go faster. I need to go on, but my legs won't run any further. So I crawl. I crawl through the thickets until my hands were bloody and raw. And when I could go no further, I prayed for it all to be over. I don't know how I survived that night. What willpower kept me going, but somehow I evaded those terrible creatures until sunrise and found my way back to civilization. It was a while before I went back into the woods again. There's a reason people have an innate fear of the woods. These creatures, these incarnations of paranoia, have haunted man for as long as he's walked in the woods. My advice to anyone in the woods after dark, don't look behind you. The next story I'm going to tell you is about Lake Anjakuni in Canada. Yes, we have a Canada horror story today. Well, not really horror, I guess, just so much as unsolved mysteries. Lake Anjakuni is in Canada's Nunavut region, and it was once home to a thriving Inuit fishing village. One day in 1930, a hunter ventured there in search of lodging and found a truly disturbing sight. The village had been abandoned, meals left half-finished, crafts left with needles still in, and loyal sledding dogs found starved to death at their post. What could have happened to the people of Lake and Jacuni? A Canadian fur trapper named Joe LaBelle was out hunting one freezing November day in the Northwest Territories of Canada. He entered the Lake and Jacuni village in search of a place to stay, only to find it completely deserted. It appeared that whatever that had happened to cause the villagers to leave had happened suddenly. He found incomplete garments with needles still in them, charcoal black food hanging over the fire pits, half-eaten meals. There were no signs of a struggle or an attack or anything that would suggest a violent event had taken place. Even more disturbingly, on the outskirts of the village, LaBelle had come across the remains of seven sled dogs still tied to their posts. It appeared that they had starved to death. Sled dogs were vital for the survival of the Inuit people, and to leave them behind would be unthinkable. 
LaBelle continued on to the edge of the village where he stumbled upon a human grave that had been recently dug up. Decorate stones encircling the burial were undisturbed, implying that it wasn't an animal that had done this, but a human. LaBelle went to the Northwest Mounted Police and told them what he had seen. The police launched an investigation, but no one from the abandoned village was ever located. The investigation concluded that the villagers had been missing for about eight weeks before LaBelle got there but were able to conclude little else as to what may have happened. Even more strangely, officers investigating the case reported seeing mysterious pulsing lights in the sky over the lake. This has led some to believe that the village may have been abducted by aliens. Skeptics have attacked LaBelle's character, claiming that he simply made the whole story up. LaBelle claimed to have been a seasoned hunter, but there were no record of him having a trapping license before 1930. It is possible that he just hunted without a license before this. The journalist that broke the story, named Keller, had also been accused of exaggerating stories in the past. Based on this evidence and no doubt a desire to be done with such a perplexing job, the police declared the story as fabricated and closed the investigation. We can't help but wonder what it would mean if these men were telling the truth. What happened to an entire village full of innocent people at Lake Anjakuni? Was their disappearance connected to the strange lights in the sky? I guess we'll never know. My last story for the night comes from Michigan. Detroit, to be precise. You know, hunting's happen all over the place, and they can get pretty intense and frightening our story here takes us back to 1962 in a William Adams who was a normal working class man who worked the graveyard shift at the Detroit Cadillac plant in Detroit, Michigan, had just moved into a rented house with his family. They were pretty ordinary, there was nothing really that special about them. They were completely unassuming and mundane in every way. Yet they were about to become the center of one of the strangest and most intense hunting the city had ever seen, involving spirits and possibly demons. So the nightmare begins when they moved into the house. William took to sleeping during the day in this tiny secluded um, bedroom. It was in the back of the house in order to not be disturbed by the noise of his five young kids. And shortly after settling in, he began to have horrific, very vivid nightmares. Basically, he was lucid dreaming. These bad dreams were apparently incredibly realistic and horrifying, featuring all manner of grotesque Im imagery to the point that he would wake in a cold sweat, screaming so loudly that the neighbors could hear. These nightmares would come to him every night, and every night he would wake in a terrified panic, never remembering exactly what had happened in these nightmares, but in a complete state of dread. He had never experienced anything quite like this, and it got so bad that he was running on very little sleep. Unable to function at his job, and he was starting to think that he might be losing his mind a little bit. And might need to go to the psychologist. He decided that he could not stand sleeping in that room anymore. And oddly, when he went back to sleeping in the master's bedroom, the nightmare ceased. At the time, William did not attribute any of this to paranormal activity. However, this was only the beginning. It would soon turn out that that back room had a certain sinister atmosphere to it. 
The family dog refused to go anywhere near the room, and the children claimed that they sometimes heard strange noises coming from within, so they avoided it. William checked the room out several times and noticed that he felt very cold when he was in there, even in the summer, and that there was an indescribable air of dread all around it. He could not figure out why this was happening, as the room was just a tiny little space barely big enough for a bed in a closet. And by all appearances, there wasn't anything menacing about it at all. Yet the dog and kids were terrified of it, and he could not deny there was a strange ambiance about it. Despite this, when William's grandmother came to visit, he offered the room as a guest room, but she too immediately aware that there was something off about this place. She slept in there anyways, but... During the night, she heard noises in the floor and walls that she described as sounding like someone was trying to break it, and she would refuse to sleep in there again. I mean, can you blame her? Indeed, she was so scared by the experience that she cut her trip short and went home. Thinking that there had been an intruder trying to break in, William contacted the police, but they could find no trace of a break-in or anything suspicious at all. It was now starting to dawn on him that despite his unwillingness to believe it, well, there was definitely some weird shit happening. He looked into the history of the house, but all he could find out about that room was it had been added on to the house after the original structure had been built. Nothing that would explain why there was so much strange phenomena around it. When William's cousin Shirley Patterson came to visit, he stayed in the room as well, and it did not take long at all for things to get weird. Patterson was not told anything about the strange things that had been going on with the room, and in a way it was sort of an experiment, since he was known to be a practical and skeptical rational individual who would not be prone to making things up. However, that night, he would feel himself be turned over by some unseen force to be confronted with the sight of what looked like a woman standing by the doorway facing the other way, with long hair and wearing what looked like a short fur coat over a blue dress. He at first thought it must be Mrs. Adams, but as he studied her, he realized that it was, in fact, not. He will recount this encounter as follows. I didn't know anything about the room. There was no reason for me to suspect anything, no reason to be afraid. It seems that I was in the bed for just a few minutes. I don't know whether I was asleep or not. I was facing the wall, and then I felt something turn me over. Don't ask me to describe the feeling. All I know is that it rolled me over, and then I saw it. Standing outside the bedroom door, at first I thought it was Lillian, but I started to tremble. It was a woman with long hair, and she had her back to me looking into the kitchen. She was wearing a short fur coat and a kind of blue dress. His fear became so intense that he screamed out, and when he did, all of the lights in the house went out to send darkness crashing down all around them. The Patterson stumbled around in the blackness and found his way to the kitchen. When the lights turned on to, to show Mrs. Adams standing there and no sign of the woman in the blue dress, as he talked to her, they could hear what sounded like groans coming from the bedroom and a foul stench fell through the air. As they tried to figure out where the smell and that sound were coming from, there was a sudden loud wailing scream that sounded like the mournful scream of something half human and half animal and a trap door in the utility room opened and slammed shut with great force, sending the two of them in a state of terror. When William came home from this late shift, they told him what had happened. 
and the police were called once again, but all of the doors and windows were locked, and there was no sign of a break-in or intruder at this point. William was thinking enough was enough, and he decided that he would go back and stay in that room the following evening to see for himself what was going on and confront whatever was in there. He would get more than he bargained for, and he would later say of what happened in that room. I'm not the kind of guy who believes in ghosts. At least I didn't. I'm a grown man with a family. I've been in the army. I just couldn't convince myself that there was anything to it. I had to try again and see what would happen. I don't know how long it was. I was still awake. I heard a noise in the room. I turned over to look and there was a face inches away from me. It was the most terrible thing I had ever seen. The eyes stared past me, almost as if they were looking into my soul. The mouth moved to talk, but only a hissing noise came out and a terrible stench. All I could think of that next morning was that if the bedroom door had been closed that Sunday night, I would have killed myself beating against it to get out. The sight of that face hovering in the gloom in front of him in that dim room sent him to a hysterical panic, fear driving him up from the bed to send him crashing down the hall screaming. He was in such a panicked state that Patterson and his wife supposedly had to wrap a blanket around him and throw him into a chair to calm him down. As they did this, the sickening stench they had smelled before came back, saturating the air with the most repugnant smell they had ever experienced and making Patterson vomit. This was enough to send the family packing, with them hastily grabbing their things and children and immediately leaving to go stay at a neighbor's house. The very next day, they would move out, never to return to the cursed house and its paranormal weirdness. Not long after this, Mrs. Adams' brother, Leo, and her sister, Virginia, came to check the house out and help the family move some of their things out because they were too afraid to go back in there. Curious as to whether there was anything to the story or not, Leo decided to go and stay in that room and take a nap. Virginia would say of what happened to Leo next. I stood out in the kitchen and Leo said he was going to lie down on the bed for 10 minutes in the dark. A few minutes later, I heard this awful groan coming from the bedroom. If it was Leo, I have never heard him make a sound like that. Before then, he came rushing through the door into the kitchen with the most horrible look on his face, like he was scared out of his mind. I asked him what he saw, but he wouldn't say anything. Apparently, Leo never would tell anyone what he had seen in that room, but it was bad enough that he had nightmares for weeks after, and he would refuse to ever step foot in that house again. After this, the house remained empty even as its notoriety grew, and the landlady allegedly forbade any paranormal investigators from checking the place out, so we may never really know what was going on there. What was going on here and what terrorized the family so bad? Was it a ghost, a demon, or something else? Why was it tethered so strong to that room? We may never know. And it seems that for now, this strange place keeps its secrets close. Well, that wraps up our episode for this week. Well, I guess I would also say Happy Halloween. <laughs> and if you like the, I guess, banter, if you will, or... If you like hearing me and David uh, together more, we actually have our own podcast called Rainbows Over the Flickered Crimson Screen. So I'll link it in the show notes. Go check it out. We do film reviews if you like that type of thing. 
<laughs> well, as always, stay safe, stay sane, and happy Halloween.